golden age of blockbusters, audiences were gripped by fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of the obscure, until one man showed them there was nothing to fear. Cinephobia. Welcome, ghouls and ghoulettes, to the Cinephobia podcast, part of the YouTube channel Cinephobia, where there's nothing to fear but film itself. Today, in our second episode of the cast, we delve deep into the newly released flick Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, discussing the film, the role the Manson family plays in the story and pop culture today, as well as serial killers and violence in modern-day cinema. All right, folks, we're going to be delving deep into the rabbit hole in this episode, so hold on to your pigtails, Alice. It's going to be a bumpy ride. I'm your host, JP. Joining us today to dissect it all is fellow cinephile and horror aficionado, Jesus Panetto, writer and audio engineer. Thanks for joining us today, Jesus. Thank you for having me. All right, and also joining us to lend her perspective on the film is true crime enthusiast and my partner in film going, Miss Estella. Hello. Now, let's start off in Ground Zero, where this whole discussion stems from, and that's uh, movie director Sergio Leone rising from the grave in order to direct his final film in the Once Upon a Time trilogy. It started off with Once Upon a Time in the West, and then it continued Once Upon a Time in America, and now directed posthumously Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is amazing. This is uh, some amazing stuff right here. I really can't believe that uh, he pulled this off. Did they? Uh, I wonder if they're going to give Oscar give Oscars to uh, uh, directors who direct Dead. I don't know. Is that a thing? Or wait, what are you talking about, dude? Leone. He's uh, he's finishing off his trilogy. You know, they dug him up. Now he's behind the camera. He's directing it. It's it, it's 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 amazing stuff. Uh, no, it's Tarantino, dude. It's uh, Tarantino. You sure? You sure it's not Sergio Leone, the director? Uh, no, last Westerns. I checked. Uh, He's finishing it off. Last I checked, his grave was intact. I mean, no one has touched it or anything. All right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, I guess I got my information. Tarantino's gone on the record of saying that I have made that movie. I guess I should have done a took little it bit. the cans, dude. All right, all right. I should have <laughs> did a little bit more research before this episode. I'm sorry. Let's just go ahead and start this all over again. We kick it off with discussion of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his ninth film. Uh, although technically it's, it's his 10th film because he actually made a movie before Reservoir Dogs in uh, 1987 called My Best Friend's Birthday, which was apparently partially destroyed in a fire, but you can find parts of it online. So, oh, shit, know, really? That always kind of confused me. Yeah, yeah, you can find parts of it online. It's, right. uh, I, I didn't know about that either, but I don't know. Maybe it's, I a, it's a good marketing ploy, um, but w- w- whatever the case is, it, it's a Quentin Tarantino film. It's, his, it's, it's one of his films, and it's out there, and it's called Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood. And we're here to talk about it all. Now, let's start off with uh, where did you first see the film, Jesus? Well, much like any other Tarantino fan, I tried to get a ticket at the New Bed, but it sold out in the first minute. So I had no choice but to watch it at the New at the Cinerama Dome. Cinerama Dome yeah. over on uh, in Sunset uh, uh-huh. in Hollywood. Mm hmm. 70 millimeter, man. What better place to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood than mm-hmm. in Hollywood? Exactly. On 70 millimeter film. Although it was shot on 35, yeah. right? Uh-huh, yeah. You've already seen it on 70. you also seen it on 35. Yeah, I saw it twice at the New Bev, like two weeks after it came out. So after the tickets came available again, they had some more showings, you were able to get in, you finally saw it at the New Bev. Mm-hmm. So which one do you prefer, the 70 millimeter or 35? Well, no difference. Honestly, I love the Cinerama Dome. Um, I think 70 millimeter was the best aspect to watch it in. I know that Tarantino got a lot of flack for filming The Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that movie takes place all in one cabin. One confined little space. Exactly. Doesn't yeah. really make a whole lot of sense to have yeah. that big of a scope. Yeah. So at least with this movie, I mean, we were able to get the scope of Los Angeles back in the 1960s. I mean, 70 millimeters just... It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. It pops off the screen. Exactly, yeah. They have some extra stuff um, at the Nubev screening of the movie. Oh, yeah, they did. Yeah. Well, they have like Rick Dalton episodes? Yeah, they or... had a Rick Dalton episode and they showed trailers from the 1960s. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it's, it's a treat. I mean, honestly, I would recommend if you're able to go to Nubev to watch it, um, check it out. Yeah. I want to get uh, the t-shirts that they have there, yeah. the, the Spawn Movie Ranch shirts. Yeah. Those they seem e- pretty dope. Dude, they even have candy from the 1960s. Like, they really want you to subvert yourself. In the environment of the 1969 there. Wow. Yeah. Like made in the 60s? Exactly. Or? Candy from the 60s. Soda from the 60s. Everything's from the 60s. 
It, what was it? Was it made recently, or was it? They they just pulled it out of a crate and it was like it's been sitting there since the sixties. Like no, it's, it's just replication, obviously. Oh, it's right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so so it's 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 still edible. It's, it's still it, edible. It hasn't yeah. expired. Okay, yeah, exactly. That's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah, I'd definitely love to check it out there sometime. Estella, we saw it together, and we saw it at the yeah. Cinerama Dome as well on seventy millimeter, which was a treat. Really yeah. nice, really nice theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A uh, sold-out crowd almost. Uh, they held the movie up for like 15 minutes for yeah. more people can come in, which really pissed me off. Yeah, me too, actually, because I went out at 11 p.m. showtime, and it's like it's already late as it is, so we had to wait like an extra 10 minutes to watch it. Well, let's go ahead and delve into uh, your opinions of the film. Jesus, let's start off with you. Uh, overall thoughts? Fucking loved it. <laughs> Fucking loved it. <laughs> yeah. Favorite Tarantino film? No, not necessarily. I mean, it's definitely maybe top five. Top five? Yeah. Dead or Alive? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's the top one? Pulp Fiction, obviously. Pulp Fiction, okay. Yeah. I know, I mean, yeah, it's just standard. Everybody says Pulp Fiction, but I don't know. It's just, I mean, it is Tarantino at his height. It's like, this is what I can do, and watch me, look at me, see what I can do for you in the future. Yeah. That's basically what Pulp Fiction Once Upon a Time. Of course, I loved it. I thought it was a great film, yeah. uh, filmmaking style, um, seeing old Hollywood and the production design, the yeah. lighting. It is different from his other films. I think that it's... Yeah. Uh, he really tried to do something really different in this film as opposed to his other ones. How so? Uh, well, for one thing, it is basically a film of just characters just hanging out. Just you know, yeah. There's really no incoherent plot to it, really. There really isn't. There really isn't, yeah. It just kind of, uh, some people have said it's like a movie about nothing. It's kind of like Seinfeld a little bit. It just kind of meanders through a little bit until <laughs> yeah. we get to the final conclusion, you know, and, and then at that point, then it all kind of comes to a head and, and something's actually... Something actually on. happens at the end, yeah. 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 But uh, still, it was, it was fun following these characters around yeah. and, you know, delving into their lives and getting lost in the whole magic of old 1969 Hollywood yeah. and how it looked and mm-hmm. the cars and the people and all that stuff, even though there was that undercurrent of, uh, of, of sinisterness, you know, underlying, yeah. which was about to change um, America, you know, at that point, which was alluded to throughout the film a lot. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of that in the film, and I think, like, it's bits and pieces. He just he doesn't give it to you right up front. It's just little pieces fed to you throughout the whole entire movie. And yeah. I think throughout the whole entire movie, you're just dedicated to, uh, you know, following Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's characters around because they're just so fucking awesome. I mean, Brad Pitt is, like, the epitome of coolness. I mean, they're you just, just so want to be like him and yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just extremely likable, man. I mean, I think that had the movie just been both of them just interacting with each other and just going about their day-to-day, it would have still been an interesting movie. Yeah. Is this the first movie they starred in together? I think so, yeah. I hadn't seen anything with them before. Uh, we need a sequel. Quentin, are you listening? Yes. Because, or, or somebody cast these two in another yeah. movie again. Dude, yeah. Sure. They oh. have good chemistry together, honestly. They do. I thought they would be yeah. best friends. Mm-hmm. Like, they are best friends. That's technically oh, the movie. Think... Well, I mean, the movie is about these two best friends just like, you know, just yeah. navigating their way through Hollywood back mm-hmm. in the old days and stuff. I, mean, I, re- I really wonder how their relationship was between them on set, given That's that they're the saying. two biggest Hollywood actors. They are. They're literally the two biggest stars. And what, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if, I wonder if egos clashed, you know, because yeah. who's the bigger guy? Who has the lead? Who's the, who's the top villain in this movie? Well, Leo, I would say Leonardo DiCaprio, obviously, that dude's been in Titanic. I mean, you can't top that. What? No. We're <laughs> okay, we're not going to get started. All right, yeah, oh, we'll, really? we'll get into the debate about that. And one thing I like to point out that I really liked in the film was uh, the cinematography by Robert Richardson, who has uh, done a lot of Quentin Tarantino's films. Oh, yeah. uh, as a matter of fact, all of them since the, much, uh, the yeah. first Kill Bill. Since yeah. the first Kill Bill film. Uh-huh. He's also worked with Scorsese a lot. He, uh, he did the lighting on Casino. He also did the lighting on uh, Wall Street. He's worked with Oliver Stone a lot. He's did the lighting on JFK, Natural Born Killers, kind of harsh overhead yeah. lights. It looks beautiful. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, my favorite parts of the film were every time someone drove in a car yeah. Yeah. around Hollywood. I fucking love that. And that was a really good I think a lot of people, I mean, would have been like, oh, we didn't need that. But no, I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's a way to capture the scope of Hollywood in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You see Brad Pitt just driving to Sunset Boulevard and you see the way how it all looks. I mean, how he transformed basically modern day Hollywood to Hollywood back in those days and stuff. And it's just impressive as hell because, I mean, I think any other filmmaker would have just CGI'd the shit out of all those scenes. Yeah. I mean, Fincher. Fincher yeah, definitely would have. <laughs> yeah. But Tarantino's like, nah, I'm going to just close down all of Sunset Boulevard. And transform it to 1969 because I'm Tarantino. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you're QT, you can do pretty much anything. Pretty much. I mean, he does stuff in this film that I don't think anybody else would be allowed to do, especially the ending. (laughs) Now, I don't know if this is something that you want to discuss, Jesus, but um, you had some role in the production of this film. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say directly. I mean, somewhat... (laughs) 
Somewhat, still claim it. No, no. No, I mean, I work in location management uh, for JCL. Um, They basically are the ones who have to close down the streets for them to uh, be able to shoot those scenes. So obviously, they shut down Sunset Boulevard for almost a whole day, I believe, which cost them like Mm -hmm. a large amount of money that can't really disclose. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. I mean, I was just, I wasn't directly involved with it. I did handle like paperwork behind it and stuff, but I never actually went on to the actual set and stuff. I mean, a lot of my coworkers did, and they all kept coming back in the office and say, like, oh my God, I just saw Brad Pitt and stuff. And I was like, fuck, man. <laughs> I'd love to be on that set. I mean, location management, eh, not necessarily what I want to do, but it's kind of cool. I mean, it gives you kind of an insight into the business, how it kind of works. Yeah, that's awesome. More of the. I guess the I'm not gonna say the boring aspect of filmmaking, but more of like the tedious like chore yeah. work of filmmaking. Like technicals. someone has to close down those streets, someone has to get the permits, yeah. someone has to hire somebody to go out there and you know keep pedestrians from going on the set. Yeah, that's basically what I do. I mean, my full time job. I mean, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, were you invited to come onto the set to 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 direct traffic or or to put signs up? Or I would have loved to have asked my boss for it. Honestly. Um, but they really, they were secret about it. I mean, it wasn't even called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was going under a different name, so I had no idea about it. What was the name it was going under? I have no idea. I mean, I haven't asked my manager yet. I don't dare. I mean, I wouldn't dare ask him because I didn't think. <laughs> they typically do that with big yeah. films. With big films, yeah. Though, just so they can hide yeah. the fact that it's like, you know. I think it was Green something, Green Terrace or something like that. Because I recall getting one of the production assistants coming to my the business my business and stuff and uh, they were asking for products obviously they got to wear like location best you know yeah. orange best so trucks don't hit them and, sh- and stuff you know yeah um and he mentioned like i'm here for an order for uh once upon a time in hollywood i'm like really it's like oh no no it's a uh, green green terrace or something uh, like that. <laughs> yeah like he wasn't supposed to say the name but he said the name yeah. and, they, and they later killed him he was found in, <laughs> exactly, a, yeah. in a freezer well on the he probably never got hired again one. well i mean i haven't disclosed it yet and just now i mean this is the first time i'm saying it yeah so poor, poor bastard. Yeah, God poor bastard. Yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing. Okay, one thing that I did not like about the film that I kind of like to point out, and this is a problem that I also had with uh, partially with Aidful Eight, and this is this unnecessary voiceover that just suddenly pops into the film. Mm-hmm. Um, we start off with with the small voiceover from. I think Brad Pitt about five minutes into the film yeah. or so. By the way, we're talking about spoilers. Just we're talking about spoilers. In case anybody listens to this, spoilers part. throughout. <laughs> spoilers throughout yeah, the film. In case you didn't know, this a podcast. Yeah. We're talking about a movie. If you didn't, we're know, gonna go in depth. Didn't that you do? We will. Yeah. So Brad Pitt pops in with this voiceover explaining why Leonardo DiCaprio can't drive. He's had a DUI, he was drunk, had an yeah. accident, this sort of thing. So we pop in with that. So we're kind of set up in the film to believe we're gonna have some voiceovers coming in, sprinkled yeah. here or there. By Brad Pitt, if not some other characters. Yeah, we have it at least twice in the. I think twice in the movie, right? It was only two times I've had a voiceover. It happened there right? five minutes in, and then about the ending three the quarters end. of the way through, yeah. right before the ending of the film, it popped in again. This time mm-hmm. by a separate character, and yeah. this was the stunt guy, Kurt Russell. Yeah, Kurt Russell, yeah. Kurt oh, yeah. Kurt Russell was one of the with the, with the second voiceover. Yeah, what two hours after yeah. the original voiceover comes in to start explaining why Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are traveling over to Italy to do, do these spaghetti westerns and the success he had over there mm-hmm. and this uh, actress that he met and, and now they're breaking up. Him and Brad Pitt they can't they they can't have this relationship anymore, so now they have to part ways. Yeah, a lot of exposition right there, all thrown in. Kind of at an odd place, I felt like. So uh, that really threw me for a loop. Uh, took me out of the movie a little bit. They did a similar thing in Hateful Eight, where middle of the movie, all of a sudden, Quentin Tarantino himself pops in with the voiceover of a lot of exposition, which I feel, please don't bar me from the new bed for saying this, is, is somewhat lazy storytelling, I felt like. I, and nobody else probably could have gotten away with that if it wasn't a Quentin Tarantino script. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um... I think I agree with you partially on that, but at the same time, I'm thinking, like, how would Tarantino have been able to convey those scenes without the voiceover? Um, right. And maybe a montage. I mean, he could have done a montage maybe, at, montage especially at the ending work. when he does the movies in Italy. Or just keep it consistent, yeah. you know, just have it all, all throughout the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that it would have worked all throughout the film, Yeah. but I mean, uh, maybe just find another creative way in order to, to convey that information. Yeah. I mean, I guess he was just pressed for time at that moment. He's like, oh, shit, I got to figure out how to yeah. how to explain the fact that he went to Italy and did all these movies and stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. I, don't know. I think it kind of worked for Hateful Eight, though, because, I mean, in that movie, I mean, there's an intermission. Yeah, right. So it kind of cuts after one scene, and then yeah. I guess someone is kind of trying to explain to you what's going on after, you know, 
that major event that happened in the first right. half of the film. That makes sense. Yeah. But but for the director himself to pop in yeah, and I know, do the yeah. voiceover, yeah. not a character in the actual film, yeah. the director who the audience already knows his voice, what yeah. he sounds like, what he talks like. I think it's because it's Tarantino. He could get away with it. I'm just thinking right now. Can. Yeah. I'm but, thinking like if Gone with the Wind had done that, remember, remember when they had their intermission and then they kind of come back in and then maybe Victor Fleming's like, okay, so Scarlett O'Hara, now she has to do this and this and stuff. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? What <laughs> but it's Tarantino. <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah, it just, it, it. It, it, it's another thing that just totally took me out of the yeah. movie. I'm like, oh, I am no longer in, in, in a cabin in yeah. the Old West. I am now in, in modern day times listening to a director do a partial DVD commentary for exactly, me. Exactly, so, yeah. So that was kind of odd. <laughs> um, one thing that I did felt like was the film was a little long. Um, uh, it, it could have been shorter in some in some spots. It was uh, two hours and 45 minutes. It was total mm-hmm. runtime, I believe. And one thing that I like to point out is some people have mentioned that his longtime editor, Sally uh, Menke, I think it was, I think is yeah. her name, who, who was the editor on what pretty much all of his films up until The Hateful Eight. She um, tragically passed away in 2010. She was uh, hiking in Griffith Park, a rugged part over there. And they found her the next day dead from uh, heat exhaustion. It was one of the hottest days on record. Uh, Her Labrador retriever was actually uh, standing next to her body. He was badly dehydrated and all that stuff. Very tragic story. Yeah. Um, Very, very, very sad. So, um, but apparently she was a person who really tried to rein Quentin in in terms of run times and sort of, Mm -hmm. you got to cut this scene. You might love this scene, but we got to take it out sort of thing. So I felt like if she was definitely uh, editing this film, it probably would have been shorter. It would have been a little tighter. Mm-hmm. But um, then again, you know his his films are all long, and uh, yeah, of course. I mean, um, I kind of slightly disagree with you. I mean, I understand that. I mean, it does drag on a little bit, especially in the beginning. I mean, I think in the few scenes where you know the Caprio's character is like doing his own scenes from the television show, and it kind of right. like blends it in, makes it look like we're actually watching the TV show. Then it right. cuts back when one of the characters says "cut," you know, yeah. and. I don't know. I mean, I think, like, uh, to me, I mean, it was kind of part of the appeal um, that we got to see all those scenes and stuff. It's just basically the film was really taking its time with establishing the environment and the characters, you know? Right. Um, and I don't think a lot of films actually would like to do that because I think modern-day audience obviously don't want to sit through all that. I mean, mm-hmm. they just want to get That's to true. it. And I think, honestly, if you were to watch it maybe a second time, you'd probably, it would probably go by faster. At least that's what I got from it. Okay. The second time that I saw it, I, I honestly went by really fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at no point did I feel like, oh my God, I'm getting bored. This yeah. is taking too long. You know, I really enjoyed the film all the way through, but it probably could have been a tighter film. Exactly. Yeah. You want to talk about, uh, well, Margot Robbie's character. I think like some people were saying that, oh, Sharon to save Tate. time on the film, it could have easily cut her character out and it wouldn't have made a difference. Uh, Sharon Tate's character, really? Yeah. Sharon Tate. No, now that you're saying it, yeah, I mean, uh, all the scenes with her didn't really play a pivotal part other than just showing, oh, this is Sharon Tate, oh yeah, my exactly. god, she might, she's going to get murdered, oh, look at this beautiful, talented girl, she's about to become a star, but then she doesn't get killed, so. Exactly. I think, like, she does play a pivotal role, and in, in, to some degree, in the movie, I think that if you know about the Manson murders, obviously, you know that eventually, when we get to August, I believe, the August 9th, or whenever the date was, uh-huh. she will, you know, be murdered and stuff, so I think much like, um, the Inglorious Bastards. I mean, we think it's going to go in this certain direction. Okay. We think that history is going to be told exactly how it should be. Yeah. But instead, Tarantino subverts our ex- expectations, you know? Okay. So you and felt it was a subversion of expectations. I thought that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, I think, I honestly, I mean, if you're a Tarantino person, I mean, obviously you're going to know that he's not going to stick to historically exactly what happened. He's going to go right. off the grid. And he really does. Um, and But I think for a certain audience, I mean, they're going to think that Sharon Tate's about to be killed. How is it going to happen in the ending? You did? Yeah. I definitely uh, yeah. was going the whole movie thinking, oh, it's it's all leading up to a Manson family murder at the Tate house. And and it did get gruesome. The, it the, really did, yeah. The, the ending. ending. It, it, it went balls to the wall But with you it. were expecting it, I guess, against you know uh, Sharon Tate and her friends. You weren't expecting exactly. it. Because, yeah, when the murderers walked into the house and the dog was looking at them, I was like, they... I was I didn't know what was gonna happen. So yeah. when the dog lunged at them, I was like, "Oh shoot!" You know, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it so just went high. completely haywire, <laughs> yeah. one hundred eighty degrees somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I was totally thrown for a loop, and I mean, I guess some audiences, or I mean, Quentin Tarantino fans probably could have or did expect the ending uh, based sure on Inglorious Bastards yeah. and how they yeah. change history with exactly, yeah. um, uh, killing Hitler and the Nazis. You know, this is where I think that the movie differs from other of Tarantino's movies. Um, throughout the whole entire film, it's really, it, is, it really is a movie about just characters hanging out. Like, the whole entire movie has this, like, st- well, not necessarily narrative or plot, but it's just 
a series of uh, just hangout events that are happening between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. They're just hanging out, talking about where his career is going and stuff. And it's fun. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's great to watch. And then last 20 minutes, all that shit just hits the, hits the fan the out of nowhere. Uh, Tarantino's movies notoriously have like all these like scenes like throughout the whole entire film. In that regard, it did feel a little tacked on, but I yeah. mean, at the end... It just you, comes you, out of left field. It really does. It does. But then at the end, you know, you saw that Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, finally got the entrance. The Golden uh-huh. Gates opened up for him, and now he's exactly. uh, apparently going to be opening up to a larger role in films as a leading man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was a great thing to see. I would have loved to see, you know, uh, maybe a little aftermath. Of, yes, uh, me of, too. Oh, what what, told... what happened with Sharon Tate? Did she win an Oscar later on? Did, yeah. Did Roman Polanski not end up going to? See, the now that's where the the voiceover would have come in handy. <laughs> there you go. I yeah. I joked around with uh, with my friends who I watched it with at the New Bev and at the Cinerama Dome that it would have been funny had the film ended and then we cut back to uh, Rick Dalton's character appearing in Chinatown, like he's. They implement oh, him. Oh, that would have been they sick. They implement him in the movie. Take off Jack Nicholson and put like. Especially uh, Rick since Dilton they did right. that with him in The Great Escape, right? Yeah, they, exactly. They, they, they could have done put, that. They uh, put Leonardo DiCaprio in they, the movie. They CGI'd him they CGI'd into the, the old movie. movie, The Great Escape, and they yeah. showed a clip of it uh, in Once Upon a Time. So now he's in Chinatown and his career gets that re, you know, it revitalizes because of that. Wow. Because, yeah, he met her Polanski. Wow, uh-huh. that would have been an awesome exactly. idea. That would have been a great way to Dude, cap it off. Yeah, I thought about that. I was like, God damn it, Tarantino, you could have done that. So yeah, let's talk about uh, the gruesomeness of the ending, and uh, what, what, what did you think about all that? Um, well, it's, it's technical Tarantino, you know? It's just, I mean, he's... When you go to see a Tarantino movie, you're expected to see crazy ball shit, stuff like that. <laughs> and there was really no violence or anything. There really wasn't. It wasn't until like the last until 20 minutes. Point, yeah, it just exactly. kind of just spewed it all at you. Yeah. I think if you watch a movie like Kill Bill, obviously, like I said, I mean, you just see like you know graphic stuff throughout, but this yeah. movie really mm-hmm. saved all that stuff till the very end. Now, do you felt it was too graphic? Do you felt that it went a little bit too far with this male character of Brad Pitt slamming this this female character's <laughs> face? Uh, it's a brick fireplace. Gets the brick fireplace. Yeah. Gets the glass poster. Uh, what, 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 Dude, what do you think? I laughed my ass off throughout the whole entire <laughs> scene because of how far fetched it was. Um, I think Tarantino has this thing where, like, I mean, he can make the most violent situations seem very um, far fetched in a way. I mean, it's just so over the top in a way. Uh, obviously, in real life, I mean, if that were to happen, that's pretty fucked up stuff. But I don't know something about Tarantino, the way he makes these scenes, how he composes them. It's just it just seems so ridiculous, honestly. Yeah, it was it was really odd because everybody in the audience that, like, that mean, we went to go see too was laughing. They at just it. laughed at it. Yeah, <laughs> it just came out it's just, I don't. I don't. It's such a violent, horrible. Especially, thing going on. especially when freaking uh, Leonardo DiCaprio takes out that flamethrower at the end. Yeah, it's you just, just don't like, see that what? come out of nowhere. Really? It's like You're what the fuck? Throwing this 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 girl in the water. And she's <laughs> yeah, already like. Three quarters dead. Oh yeah, my God. I feel like but maybe it was a, her screaming that made it funny throughout because we just have Brandy the dog. Yeah, I don't remember anybody else's dude. Name. Like the sweetest dog, dog throughout the whole entire movie, movie. The whole and then right we get to the end and he's suddenly an attack dog that just bites somebody so, in the balls. Yeah, I think yeah. the sounds of the mauling and her just like ah, ah scream the whole time like the, the, the most yeah. high pitched scream. So yeah. I think that made it funny. But that's the thing he plays it for a farce. He doesn't really like project it. If this wasn't a movie, this would just be a completely just violent scene of people getting horrifically yeah. right you know, murdered and stuff. But I mean, Tarantino plays it like, I don't know, like some comedic, like little, you know, like SNL parody in a way. Yeah, it comes across as an yeah, SNL parody. It does, it does. Yeah, it's like you're the audience, you're in the SNL audience watching this really comical parody of the Manson, you know, family in a way. Yeah. yeah. And you're already kind of set up for, for the comedy with Brad Pitt smoking. The, exactly. Uh, the... No, you're laughing right off the bat because he's like looking at the one guy. He's like, yeah. uh, like, I mean, are you real? And he's like, yeah. And they're just both laughing at each other. Just... Yeah, and he's like, oh, you know, smoking it. Oh, here we go. You know, that's exactly, that sort of yeah. thing. And, you know, it's just a very, very light tone, even yeah. though you know something bad's going to happen. It's the way he edits it. I mean, we know this is a comedy scene. We're laughing right at the beginning because, obviously, Pratt Pitt's high as fuck. And, you know, just, uh, you know, DiCaprio's drinking his, you know, his alcoholic drinks in the pool. Yeah. But I guess they were all on LCD, right? LSD, Not all LSD. LSD. Yeah, yeah, I know. Just LSD. They, were, they didn't LSD. have LCD, LCD. back then. They were all on LSD, though, I guess, because they, the Manson family, I'm sure they were high. Oh, they were high as mind. fuck on. And then he smoked that acid-laced uh, cigarette. cigarette. Also, they're all, so just, they're all just high as fuck, up. just, yeah, just ready to kill each other Drunk, and shit. Drunk, high, yeah. yeah so. mm-hmm. Wow. I think that's the trademark that Tarantino has. His violent scenes are to the excess that they seem almost unrealistic. Uh-huh. 
I think if you watch a movie like Kill Bill, like where you know that the bride chops off, uh, you know, one of the girls' like arms off, and it's just like right. blood just spurts out like crazy, like beyond, like because human beings only have like Very two liters of blood, right? Yeah. <laughs> this lady's just like bleeding gallons of blood all over the uh-huh. place and stuff when her arm gets cut off by a samurai sword. The same with like when Marvin gets shot in the face. I mean, just like just like shots and like you know yeah. just all over the the fucking back of the car. So yeah. I think he stylized it in a way which makes it like you know. It is graphic, but it's not realistic, honestly. Tarantino has definitely perfected the art of violence yeah. in, in, in film, much as the way Martin Scorsese has. Exactly. I in, think he's right on the thin line. He has found the thin line between, you know, what is considered untasteful and considered like entertaining, I guess. And that's a tough thing to do. Exactly. That's a really tough thing to he do. He could either he could easily go beyond both sides. I mean, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's just go ahead and uh, delve onto the next topic about Manson and why the why the Manson family in the movie. We already kind of talked about him on a little bit. Um, well, yeah, I did want to ask. I mean, because um, Manson doesn't really play an important part in the movie at all. Really, he doesn't. You only see him once. I He's think. only once in the film. Yeah, yeah. He was supposed to be in yeah. Santa Barbara or something at the time, right? Exactly. Or, uh, no, yeah. Brad's character other? shows up to Spawn Ranch, and yeah. then he doesn't get to meet Charlie, you know? Mm-hmm. Charlie's uh, somewhere else. Right, right. And I kind of wondered, I mean, what was the purpose of having Manson in the movie? I mean, I guess you had to show him at least once. Well, I mean, they you did know, show him They once, showed yeah. him in the trailer, and you, you kind of thought he might be in there more. Yeah, you thought he was going to be more in there. Yeah, Maybe the they f- didn't want to give him, like, I don't know, any credit. I mean, granted, like, everybody knows who he is across the world. Maybe mm-hmm. Tarantino was like, no, I don't want to make this a... Well, I guess it is about him with the Manson family, but... Like, we're not going to put him in there, maybe. Yeah. We don't want to put him on the big screen. We don't want to give him a platform. I guess you're giving the Manson family a platform. But oh, like, yeah, in a way, yeah, the family's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in a way, I mean, I think, I think it really, um, it plays a major role to some degree. I mean, I think people will say that, oh, it wasn't really necessary. It was just for that last 20 minutes of the film. But it really does have an impact on the whole entire film in general. Because I think when the murders happened in 1969, yeah, actually it's been 50 years now. I mean, wow. this week, it's yeah. been 50 years since the murders took this place. This week, 50 years. Week. Yeah, 50 years. Um, They were really impactful at the time. I mean, 1969, I mean, at that time, I think we were still in the hippie generation, the free love and stuff like that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, just this horrible, horrific murders happened that just completely changed everything. It changed the outlook of Hollywood, I mean, what we consider to be, you know, this fantasy-like environment and stuff, and then all of a sudden, it just gets snuffed out with these two murders. The shattered by yeah. this, this horrific murder uh-huh. of these uh, beautiful yeah. and, and rich and wealthy people. Exactly, yeah. Well, isn't what, that one of the, what, what one of the girls from the Manson family says? She was like, these people, what did she say? These people have socialized us, I guess, or they have done such and such on TV, so let's kill TV. I can't remember exactly what she said in the movie. Uh, in, the movie. Right, in the movie, yeah. yeah. they taught us to kill... Yeah, so yeah, we're going so to kill them. Kill them. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh-huh. is that the actual reason why they went for uh, Rick Dalton's house as opposed to the Sharon Tate house was because... Well, because Rick Dalton comes out and obviously confronts yeah. them and stuff, so he kind of changes the course of history in a way like mm-hmm. by just like confronting them. And so that, like, was, that was the whole rationale. So they didn't accidentally go into the wrong house. They're no. just like, oh no, we're going to go into this house first. Yeah, they changed their yeah. mind. It was like, oh, we're not going to go after, you know. Okay, I was a little that. confused about that. Yeah, at first that's what I thought, but then no, they were like, oh, this is our new plan. We're going to kill Rick Dalton because he taught us about violence. Yeah. It's rather interesting in a way because I mean, I think um, it plays with a lot of uh, the, like as, as I said earlier, I mean, we're expecting it to end a certain way, right. but instead it ends this other way. Because, I mean, a lot of people will say, I mean, yeah, there was really no point to it. I mean, it could just been just from any route of random killers just coming in and, you know, it would have just, Brad, people would have just beaten the shit out of them and killed them. Uh, but I think that uh, Tarantino really plays with these themes of, like, you know, belonging in modern-day Hollywood in a way. Because, I mean, Rick Dalton is a product of old Hollywood in a way. True. And I think the reason why Sharon Tate is there is because she's, uh, she's a rising star. Her career's going up, so she's basically the new Hollywood. Mm. Yeah. So, in a way, I think... Uh, Tarantino's kind of making this love letter to the 1960s where he's trying to say that old Hollywood can exist along with new Hollywood, which is why Sharon Tate stays alive at the end. Wow, that was really poignant, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you just come up with that? Yeah, yeah thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good abstract point. I like that point. Yeah. It's different. I, I do, I do. I think, I think yeah. that's a really uh, uh, astute observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the themes of relevance, I think, because, I mean, Rick Dalton keeps down saying, like, oh, I'm a husband, I'm, I don't belong in Hollywood anymore and that's stuff. That's true, that's true. Yeah, that's why he doesn't want to do Westerns, because he feels like, oh, when I do Westerns, that's the end of my career. It's not yeah. going to go anywhere anymore. 
And it seems like his career paralleled Eastwood's a lot in a way. In a way, yeah, because... Uh, uh, it, it was partially... His character was partially based on Clint Eastwood, I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, because he ended up going to Italy and did yeah. a lot of spaghetti westerns. Exactly, yeah. And then he kind of became a little bit famous from that, and then he came back to America. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's some parallels to be seen in the film in a way. I think that's the reason why he has all those scenes with Sharon Tate. Uh, Sharon Tate's obviously, you know, she's going to watch her own movies. She's seen audience enjoy the movies because there are these fantasy elements about, you know, she's doing martial arts with Bruce Lee and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And Rick Dalton is obviously this character who's like, uh, my career's ending and stuff. And I think that at least when living next to Sharon Tate, I got my second chance at, you know, moving into the new version of Hollywood. Exactly. I I felt like her character could have been a little bit more fleshed out. It could have, yeah. Um, cause I mean, you saw her and she was just, you know, kind of this, just hanging out, bubbly, you know, happy, you know, partying with her husband yeah, and just care, watching her carefree gal, showing off her feet, her dirty feet. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to, I guess what we were talking about earlier about the parallels of like both the career of Sharon Tate and the career of Rick Dalton. I think at that time, I mean, obviously remember like when Rick Dalton says like, Oh, I'm living next to the director of Rosemary's baby. Yeah. Um, it really was like, I mean, this emergence of New Hollywood. New Hollywood obviously started around the 1970s, I believe. Well, late 1960s to, uh, to the early Rider, 1970s. Yeah, uh, Easy Rider. Rosemary's Baby was one, obviously one of the first ones to start it. I mean, it was a, these pretty gloomy movies that really depicted life as being really depressing and stuff. Yeah. And I think uh, Rick Dalton was really of the romanticized like westerns, of like, like, like right. an homage to Bonanza, right? Well, I've, am I pronouncing that right? Clint Eastwood's old TV show, Bonanza, Bonanza? Bonanza, Bonanza, yeah. Bonanza, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like it was a little bit more based on the show Rawhide. But yeah, it was really just, I think, like these two different type of films interacting with each other. I mean, it was um, mm. realism versus romanticism in a way because uh, Sharon Tate, uh, that movie she did with Dean, Mar- with Dean Martin, I believe. Uh, the Wrecking like, Crew. The Wrecking Crew, yeah. Yes. She's watching that movie in the theaters and it's really this like over-the-top like fantasy, like adventure type of movie and stuff. And it's obviously meant to parallel with kind of like the darkness of what Hollywood is now at that time, at, at least with the reality, not so much with the films. Because I mean, obviously, by the 1970s, we started getting these other different type of movies. Um, Whereas in the 60s, you were seeing more beach uh, blanket bingo. You were seeing, you know, musicals, spaghetti were... westerns and stuff. I mean, just like I mean, these movies that yeah. seem like over the top, uh, which is a bygone genre now. Fantasy. Westerns, in a way, yeah, in a way, they become that, yeah. Just like Rick Dalton, you know, yeah. he he is a bygone. He's a bygone genre, actor, uh, yeah. Uh huh. He wants to adapt to the new modern Hollywood. I think that's what his goal of the movie. What he what's the ultimate goal of the movie? Because I mean, we think that maybe Rick Dalton doesn't have really a goal like every you know standard character in any movie. Yeah. But his goal is to be relevant. So I want to exist in Hollywood, even though it's changing to mm. something else that it isn't. So I think when we get to all those crazy crazy scenes at the end, we're like you know. Uh, they're both killing off these Manson characters who were originally meant to kill Sharon Tate and end the fantasy elements of the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, in a way, old Hollywood is really what ends up saving new Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. So you, do you think that's the, the point of the film? That I think that really is the point of the film. In a way, he's trying to say that we can have both. I mean, we can have our, you know, our Indian, our mm. auteur movies. But we can also have the Marvel movies, you know? <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it didn't open up at number one. It opened, opened up, up at number two, number next two. to Lion King. Lion King. Still make what? good business. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is a big wow. But so, it still make good money. I mean, I think that's the power of Tarantino. It's it that did. people can go watch the movie just based off the fact that it's a Tarantino movie and not so much a franchise or a sequel. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's one thing that I really liked about the film is that in the middle of blockbuster season right now where you're seeing a lot of tentpole films, you're seeing a lot of sequels, reboots, superhero films, uh, you have an original film coming out with an original story and people are uh, going to go see it, you know, even though it did open at number two. I think that's a, that's a win for independent cinema, even though it's not an independent film by any means, but, you know, original films. Um, and that's what we need more of, I think, yeah. in, 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 in cinema, you know? Yeah. And those are the stories that uh, really reach out to people and really make an impact on people's lives. Uh, hopping off my soapbox now. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, I think A24 is probably one of the pioneers that's really leading Absolutely. indie filmmakers to widely release their movies to audience. Shout out A24. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think let's switch gears and talk about... Uh, we just saw a scene from Manson Family. Oh, my God. 2003. Uh, Wow. Give me your thoughts on that scene. I mean, I think it was a really hard scene. I mean, before we started this podcast, I yeah. wanted to show these guys um, this other movie called Manson Family in 2003, directed by Jim Ben Bieber. Um, it's an interesting film uh, in a way. I think it kind of, uh, 
Whereas Once Upon a Time was more of like a fictional fairy tale like version of the Manson murders. Yeah. Manson family kind of depicts I guess the realism of it all. I mean the viciousness and the brutality of the murders. Yeah. It was uh it was pretty brutal. Yeah. Because um, we saw the scene brutal. where Sharon Tate and her friends get killed. Yeah, we saw that scene. I saw the trailer beforehand. The we didn't see the R rated version because uh I thought that I had, you know, downloaded the <laughs> the R rated version, but it turns out we had downloaded the unrated version, oh, I which you did was that on purpose. You I did not do that on purpose. I swear. Because the first time I saw that movie, I saw the R rated version with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The first time I saw those two movies together, wow. and funny. really fucked up double a feature. double feature, in, in my opinion. <laughs> oh um, my god! And I think it at the time when I saw that movie, I thought that it was just too over the top, and yeah. that director was, you know, just doing everything in excess. Yeah. But after, you know, reading material on the Manson murders, watching documentaries and stuff, I realized that it was pretty pretty truthful in its depiction of it all. It seemed like yeah. he was just trying to get into the head and just the psyche of these people. Yeah, in a way, yeah. And it, it, very artistic in the use of lighting. Exactly. Uh, like you mentioned, it was a it's lot pretty of... pretty jello. It, it, I mean, I think the director saw a lot of jello Italian, you know, horror slashers before he made this movie. Anytime you saw somebody being stabbed, the lighting changed. You saw red. a lot of oranges, reds, greens, yeah. blues mm-hmm. popping up and stuff like that. So yeah. it was very artistic in that regard. It wasn't yeah. filmed as, you know, this just super, super duper low budget snuff. Super grainy 16 millimeter film and stuff as opposed to like yeah. once upon a time which is more yeah more high budget uh more technically pleasing to the eyes as a in a, in a way yeah big time yeah they, yeah they had some money behind that one this one they didn't have a dime either. oh yeah they they made this movie they started making this movie in 1988 um i recall reading like you know on articles about the fact that the director just would when he was in college, he took out, like, you know, he would use school loans to make movies instead of pay for his classes and stuff. Wow. So he ran out of money when he was making this movie, and he pieced together, like, little pieces of the film. It wasn't complete. He would release it to several festivals in hopes to garner more money to finish it. Oh, my God. So by the time it got to 2003, um, after showing it for several years and stuff, I think Dark Skies production finally gave him money to finish it. Okay. And give it its proper theatrical release. Wow. And That's the movie insane. came out and it got fairly fairly positive reviews actually, especially considering the fact it's a really bound movie. Roger Ebert seemed to give it a yes. pretty Roger positive. Roger Ebert's review is pretty interesting because he kinda says in his review, like, I mean, it's a good movie, but I just can't recommend it, you know, right. to anyone. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. It's not for everybody. Let's just it's say not for that. everybody. It's like it's one of those movies that you give it its credit for the way it's made, but not so much for the the material or the the you know, the stuff that the movie's about. Yeah. It's the same way, like, I can't necessarily recommend Clockwork Orange to anyone. I can't necessarily recommend The Exorcist to anyone. But I know they're great films. They're well-made. I would recommend The Exorcist to anybody. I mean, anyone? especially yeah. by nah. today's standards, I really? feel like, you know, a lot of I people don't. might consider it pretty tame. Yeah. Uh, the scene where she's kind of, you know, just stabbing herself with the crucifix, I mean. In the, yeah, in the, I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's still, it's still pretty extreme. That but. was dark, but it was... Funny pretty tame. Pretty tame. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, people found yeah, comedy. Audiences yeah. might sort of laugh at this sort of thing. But yeah, this is just a whole different level. This is this is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer hobo with the shotgun. Need to take a hot shower after you get done watching it because no, that's how really ugly do. and dirty you feel. I think so, we only saw like obviously like ten minutes of the movie, which yeah. obviously in itself, I mean that stuff's pretty brutal. Yeah. But I mean the whole movie as an entirety kind of reflects this notion that. Manson had this ability to manipulate people into doing these really horrific things for him. Mm-hmm. Even to the present day, I mean, I think the spoiler alert for that movie, um, when we get to like the ending, I mean, it kind of shows that modern day, modern day Los Angeles and stuff, people are still influenced to do really crazy stuff mm. because of Manson. And oh, really? There's a, even to this day, I mean, there's still a couple of murders that are related to him. Get out you know? of here. Yeah. People, I mean, I've seen people wear those shirts at punk rock shows every once in a while, Manson shirt and stuff like that. Yeah. And. I don't know. I mean, I don't know necessarily if it's kind of the style of it or just, you know, the that they believe in the message. I mean, I don't know. But he does have this power over people to this very day in a way, yeah. which is kind of scary. Yeah. He is a pop culture icon, like it or in not. In a way, yeah. He has changed um, the way we see the world. Because, I mean, obviously, yeah, the hippie generation was all about love and peace. And then man just came by and just fucked it up for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I think what you saw in that movie also, it's like, you know, like how there's a scene where Sharon Tate picks up a hitchhiker. Like, she casually yeah, just yeah, picks yeah. up a hitchhiker on her way to do an errand. Uh-huh. And I think, like, nowadays, no one would ever fucking do yeah. that. Hell no. You're not like going to pick up some then, random stranger on the street? Back then, I guess, they used to do it all the time. People exactly. did hitchhike all the time. Yeah. yeah. Or they would have open parties where anybody could come by. Just, yeah. you know, just like... Man. Yeah, I think you really... I think if there's one thing I want to give the movie credit for, it's the fact that it depicts these characters as being the monsters that they are, that they did these horrible things. Yeah. 
out of their own free will in a way. Because, I mean, I think you, before we did this podcast, you were watching documentaries where they said, like, yeah. I'm a different person now from who I was. But, I mean, they legitimately did these things out of their own free will. They killed for Manson because they chose to. It wasn't that they were manipulated by this guy to do it. I was going to say, literally, when we watched the documentary, I'm all like, yeah, and the courts wouldn't even give them parole and blah, blah, blah. And then after watching that scene, I'm like, if the real scene happened, anything like that scene, I'm like, nah, fuck them people. Like, they can rot in jail. jail Because that was just really like, I feel like if you were able to do something that brutal, like, okay, killing somebody, yeah, you can be rehabilitated. But like, killing somebody like that, I just- For no reason. For no reason. No reason at all. There's a dark evil inside of you, and I wouldn't want you outside of a fucking cage like around me or anybody else but exactly. te- tex was the one that that well, gave, that delivered that. the fatal blows to pretty much pretty much everybody he killed um but yeah. i think uh everybody else played a part in it in a way yeah. like uh i forget the name but that one girl who hold it down uh sharon tate's arm and she was getting stabbed i mean i think she had to take as much credit as it for mm. as much as tex watson for those murders um i think regardless i mean they were there they could have intervened i mean yeah watching stuff. something like that and like not passing out or not throwing up or not even trying to help them or at least running away. I feel like that says a lot about No, even the fact that she told her, like, I mean, I don't give a shit about yeah, you. You're going to die. That you. literally was what she told Sharon Tate before she died in real life. It was? She did yeah. literally tell her that. I don't give a fuck I was going to say, I don't give a fuck about you or your baby. <laughs> like, yeah, oh exactly. God, she <laughs> did tell her that. And that was something that's been used against her for every parole meeting. Like, these were the words you told her before you killed her. So why should we show you any mercy wow. and release you? It is yeah. show any mercy to her. I mean, at the same time, you know, just to play devil's advocate, you know, these were impressionable people who are on influence of drugs and a well, charismatic yeah, I mean, cult leader. I feel like uh, if, if you look at the interviews of these women, it seems like they have definitely uh, changed. It seems like they are very remorseful they of their are. crimes. I and, do encourage uh, people to check those documentaries out because, I mean, I think it's one-sided to just see the movie, these two movies, and true. just think that yeah. these guys are vicious killers. You know, at the end of the day, whatever happens, they're still going to stay in prison. They're not going to get parole. Yeah. They're going to stay there. No way uh, at all. There's no way they're ever going to let them out because of the infamy of the crime and public outcry if they ever are released. Yeah. So. Where are they gonna go anyways? It's like you're gonna like move somewhere and Well one of them has already died, I think, in jail, so it's just Girl well two of them died. have died. Obviously Manson died and one female, of the girls. Sorry. Yeah. So there's still two left and I think they try to fight for parole every chance they exactly, get. Exactly, yeah. Every four years they're they get not parole means. That, no, it's, it's never gonna happen. Not... I think at least that's what the what I find effective about the movie. Any juror who ever saw that movie would know that. Yeah, I mean maybe these guys are sorry, but the crimes are just too brutal to forgive. So they're automatically biased, yeah. Any juror like no yeah, they're well, I yeah. guess when you go to a parole hearing, it's not with the jury. It's just with well, it's not the jury. It's just, yeah. I mean, I guess what but the just everybody is biased. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah, and so I think, like, that's kind of why, obviously, Deborah Tate, I mean, the sister of Sharon Tate, she doesn't really like all these depictions of her sister being killed, obviously. Yeah. Right. There was two films released this year about uh, that's right. Sharon Tate, I believe, and Deborah Tate was not too happy with them. I think she kind of wanted to sue them both. But for some reason, she, well, I mean, we know why. Yeah. We know why she kind of, like, approved Tarantino's version. Right. Because Tarantino kind of, uh, he really, like, turns these, like, really vicious murders into, like, a farce in a way. Like, these guys get the comeuppance that they deserve in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this is what everybody wishes would have happened. Wishes would have happened, yeah. This would happen if, like, karma, you know, worked all the time. Exactly. If karma existed, these people would have gotten really brutally killed by Brad Pitt. Yeah. (laughs) And his dog. And his dog, yeah. (laughs) Not only will they die in prison, they will live on an infamy by being murdered on film by Quentin Tarantino. Exactly. I think that's kind of what Tarantino tries to do. It's the same thing he did with uh, Inglorious Bastards, where it's like, let's make a farce out of the Nazi party and Hitler and all those characters. Here it's like, let's make these characters a farce as well. Right. You know, take away their infamy, take away their... The stuff that they did, like they mean nothing to history at all. Like, that's why I think, like he calls it "Once Upon a Time" because it's some fairy yeah, tale. Yeah, it true. is. It's a fictional depiction of like what we would like to see. It's like we want our characters to have happy endings in a way, and this movie kind of gives us that happy ending. Mm-hmm. It kind of takes away the realism of the what we saw in Mads in two thousand three, and replaces it with more optimistic like outlook on the future. Like the things are going to be okay. Sharon Tate's going to have her baby. Rick right. Dalton's going to have his career come back. Mm-hmm. Everything's right. fine with the world. And maybe Polanski won't go, you know, Polanski won't do all those crazy things that we could, you know, go on topic later on. Let's hope about. not. Let's yeah. hope he doesn't. I kind of want to take, uh, switch gears and talk about like, uh. Switch it up. Switch it up. Because uh, this is like the third uh, Manson movie that came out this year in a way. Oh He's always like. 50 years like. later and people are still obsessed. I mean, yeah. to be honest, like he, did he get what he wanted? Like he did, I guess. He became infamous. I think that was yeah. his goal. Like he was trying to get his music. You well, know, no, no. His goal was to music. start a race war, actually. Well, yeah, actually. Oh, shit. But that shit never. <laughs> mm. It was just ecstasy and, you know, drug logic that they were just like, oh, well, by yeah, killing these people, we're going to start a race war and stuff, you know? 
And then his songs, which never really became famous, which yeah. he made, actually did uh, gain, you know, a little bit of uh, infamy later on. I think, you know, maybe even some famous musicians might have covered him. Guns N' Roses did a cover on a couple of his songs. There you go. Yeah. Which is kind of, I mean, I, I wouldn't think, do that. Uh, I feel like this. There's a was, lot of yeah. uh, heat that they received from the Tate family have. for doing that. Um, and then uh, this recent movie that came out, uh, The Haunting of Sharon Tate, plays a lot of his music. Really? Yeah. Wait, the haunting of uh, Sharon, Tate. Sharon Tate. It's uh, with Hillary Duff. It's like I mean, oh, yeah. Have you was... seen it? Is it any good? No, no I don't want to watch it. I mean, from, <laughs> from what I've heard, Duff. it's pretty bad. It's uh, I'm not recommending it. To the anyone. haunting of Sharon Tate. Yeah. yeah, but it's just done in so bad taste. I mean, these are I think in my opinion, these movies are literally exploiting these murders. I mean, honestly, that's what I think. I think at least when we saw the Manson family, it wasn't trying to necessarily, I don't know, make us. Because liked what we were watching. I mean, uh, we do feel bad about seeing that stuff on the screen. Whereas, like these other movies, I mean, they're just playing it for like horror movies, thrills, and you know, scares and like little like jump scares and stuff like that. And I think at least when we're watching a movie like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or Silence of the Lambs, we're watching serial killers for what they really are. Right. You yeah. depict everything honestly. Don't like you know stylize it to make it a horror film with like you know sh- cheap thrills and stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Just present the subject as it is. I think. uh Manson family kind of does that. I mean, is it like hardcore, brutal stuff to watch? Yes, but it's honest. At least I can say that about it. Mm. I mean, it is a, is a fine line between uh, depicting is. something in a, in a real life way and treating it with respect and ex- exploiting it. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that if it's something that takes those elements and uses it to make some other type of movie as opposed to what it really is, then that's where it's like I consider it exploitative in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I agree with you. I definitely feel like they approached it in a very artistic way that tried to uh, give a new matter. viewpoint on it. Exactly. And I know that Tarantino gets a lot of flack for it because every time he releases a movie, there just seems to always be a controversy about you know his films in a way. Of I course. recall, I mean, I'm yeah. pretty sure you've seen that video where he released uh, Kill Bill and he has that one interaction with that film critic uh, who said that his film was too violent and he said, like, oh, I recommend it for children and stuff. And critic, uh, he's like, Oh, like, why would you depict such horrible, violent stuff? And then Tarantino says, like, because it's fun, Janice. <laughs> but I think, like, she responds back by saying, like, oh, well, how would you like it if someone just attacked you on the streets with a samurai sword and stuff? And then Tarantino, I think, like, he eloquently responded back, well, well now, now you're fucked up because, I mean, you're talking about real life. Mine is just a fantasy. Mine is just a movie. Right. It's a depiction of excessive violence that doesn't really merit any, like, you know, existential purpose in real life in a way. It's just a movie. Yeah, but I mean, we're all fascinated by it in a way. I think we all, as you know, human beings, want to watch violence. I don't know because it's just embedded in the way. I guess, like, I mean, we're drawn to it. We're drawn to it in a way. Yeah, in a way, bloodlust that we uh, is ingrained in us from the gladiator times of sitting around in the Colosseum and watching people being eaten by lions and battle to the death. It's the same reason why we sit around and we watch boxing or we watch MMA or hockey, hockey. (laughs) You know, uh, football in some ways. You know, they're 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 violent physical sports where you can uh, get some catharsis out of seeing somebody beating the hell out of somebody else. Or, or being tackled to the ground or what have you. Yeah, but at least when we're watching the film, we're watching it within the context of a really safe environment where yeah. it's like a coaster in a way. We are experiencing the horrors and the dangers of humankind, but we're not technically taking a part of it or, you know, being affected by it. Mm-hmm. It's safe. I mean, we watch in a safe environment. It is. It's so far-fetched. I mean, Making I think that's the appeal. Yeah. As I said before, that's the appeal of Tarantino. He takes these really, like, excessively graphic scenes and makes them so far-fetched. Mm-hmm. He really took what was this really tragic um, happening in, you know, the history of Los Angeles and turned it into more of like a fantasy-like uh, fantasy-like movie where, like, I mean, you don't feel guilty for watching it, I mean, because it depicts things in a more lighter tone. It was. It, and it was a, a love letter to old Hollywood really is, yeah. and uh, 1969 uh, Los Angeles, the place that he grew up in as a kid with all the, the, the radio playing such a big part in the background, the music. The music yeah. uh, great, great soundtrack, by the exactly, way. That, yeah. that California Dreamin' song. I had to yes, download that one after I uh, got too, home. Just driving around Sunset just listening to that music. Uh, it's just, and it's, you know, it, it signifies the end of an era. And it's, it really uh, was, yeah. This is definitely probably one of my uh, more favorite of his films. Uh, I, I didn't, too. I didn't, care, I didn't care for the Kill Bill films. Um, Blasphemy. I know. Sorry. <laughs> my, my favorite uh, Tarantino film still remains Jack. Jackie Brown. Love Jackie Brown. Yeah. Great flick. Sorry, recently, actually. Uh, yeah, definitely. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, definitely hit it out the park. And 
Who knows how many more films he's going to make? I know he said he's only got one more in him. Some people saying it's going to be a Star Trek film. Some people saying it's going to be a horror film. I would love to see a horror movie by Tarantino. Speaking of horror films, uh, that scene at Spawn Ranch where you see Brad Pitt going to go check out George Spawn to see if Uh he's actually alive or dead. A lot of people said it was the closest that Tarantino has gotten to directing a horror film before. And a lot of people pointed out that that was a really good scene. Very suspenseful, yeah. It was. It was really good. And uh, I don't don't know if you know this or not, but the, the, the soundtrack, the little music that they're playing in the background when Brad Pitt's going up to the door is actually an unreleased Bernard Herrmann score from the Alfred Hitchcock film Torn Curtain. Oh, really? Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. And it was a really good score that he used right there, too. So uh, just the attention to detail, not only in set, lighting, uh, music, casting, uh, just made it a really great film. Of course, as I mentioned, I do have my criticisms about it, but they're uh, definitely not outweighed by the goods. The goods. The goods. He brought the goods on this one. Exactly. Oh, one more Easter egg that I think uh, people should know. And this, I learned it when I watched, went to watch it at the New Bev. Uh, there's a scene where, like, at the end of the movie where, like, Sharon Tate and her friends are going to go to a coyote Mexican food, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she asks J.C. Brink, like, I mean, what's going on down on the street right there? It's like... It's the porn... The porn theater. Oh, that's the new Bev. That's the new Bev. That's right. Yeah. Oh. That's the new Beverly. Oh, they're I mean, having it was like, porn premiere. Oh, they oh. have porn premieres now? Yeah, they're fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was the new Bev. Yeah, because yeah. it used to be a porn theater. Yeah. It was point. a porn theater, yeah. Oh, wow. Dull films, yeah. That was a good Easter egg. Yeah, that was a good Easter egg. I mean, I did not know that until someone at the New Bed pointed that out. It's like, oh, shit. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, it was a good little 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 tidbit right there. Did they change the seats since nineteen sixty nine? They did. They well, did. they did. They took a whole year to re- renovate that theater. So they had a recent renovation. <laughs> Bathroom still the same sure. size though, right? Dude, nothing yeah. of the theater changed. I mean, I don't know if you've been to the New Bed since they opened it. Nothing. Yeah. What did right. we go see recently? What was the last thing you guys saw? Oh, we went saw Valley Girl and uh, Virgin Suicides. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. I saw with the Untouchables uh, in January, actually. I kind of want to go back and I want to watch some of the films that he played last month, which were kind of curating, you know, leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I kind of want to watch The Wrecking Crew. Yeah. I don't know. I, have you gone back and watched any of these old films? I have not, no. I mean, Untouchables was the last one I saw. Shit, I just, uh, you know, if you love Tarantino, just check out Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, check it out more than once. I'm pretty sure that the more times you watch it, the more you'll get out of it. The only message I wanted to reiterate is to put Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio together again. Yes. Damn. This time, lots of shirtless scenes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, how'd you feel about uh, Brad Pitt on the roof of the house there when he took his shirt off? That was a very good I scene. heard a lot of people interacting to that. Favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> even though, even though it, uh, apparently his character killed his wife. Oh, yeah. They kind of, yeah. We don't know that for sure. Yeah, we don't we know, know that. that but we, we pretty much do know. It's circumstantial evidence. We don't know. We're never shown. She was asking for it. She was. She, uh, was. she was egging him on. I'm sorry, yeah. folks. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think a lot of people forgived him. And plus, he's Brad Pitt. So how are you going to be mad at this guy, right? Exactly. Can't be mad. Uh, so that concludes our podcast for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guests for being here, Mr. Jesus Pinedo. Thank you, you for being on the show, sir. Thank you again. I mean, this is uh, something I really wanted to do. We're going to have you on for more episodes in the future. So, All right. Awesome. Uh, Hopefully I can work on my voice a bit better. <laughs> uh, no, you're great. Perfect. Uh, contrast Opposite to, to mine. Exactly. Exactly. The in a way, you know, yes. you got the deep one. You got to, you know, play around with it. Estella. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show today. Really appreciate it. It was really fun. Yeah. I think Estella's is like casual moviegoer, the one who like we're I'm trying to sell casual, our movies to. Yeah. Yeah. Movie-goer. <laughs> yeah. It's really helpful. So thank you so much for being on the show. We had a great time. Join us next time for the next episode of the Cinephobia Podcast. Ooh.